morning. If uh, we haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, my name is Tyler. I'm the youth pastor here, and uh, you'll have to forgive me if um, I'm stopping to take a drink of water or if I just go off on a tangent. You're like, I have no idea what he's saying. Uh, like most of you, uh, we have not been immune to colds and to sickness over the last week. And so I woke up this morning and I was like, I don't even know what day of the week it is. But here we are. And so don't pity me. You're all sick too. But I'm just saying, I'm just saying that if I go off on a tangent, please show me some grace if you would. But uh, we're in week two of our series, Something Needs to Change. I want to start with a story. <clears throat> told to me by a seminary professor uh, a few years ago. The story goes like this. Years ago, there was a pastor who noticed that a family standing in front of him at a New Orleans convenience store did not have enough money to pay for the few items that they had. And so he tapped the man on the shoulder and said, you don't even need to turn around, but please accept this money. And he reached his arm around the man and, and gave him some cash. And the man took the money without ever looking into the face of the, the preacher, the pastor who gave him the money. And then nine years later, the pastor was invited to speak at a church in New Orleans. And after the service, a man walked up to the preacher and shared this story, shared his testimony about how he had come to faith in Christ. And he said, several years ago, my wife and our child were destitute. We had lost everything. We had no jobs. We had no money. We were living in our car. We had lost all hope, and we had actually agreed in that on that day to a suicide pact that included our child. But we decided first that we would give our son some food, and so we drove to a convenience store to buy him some food and some milk. And while we were standing in line at the store, we realized that we did not have enough money to pay for these items, but a man behind us asked us to please take the money from his hand and not to look at him. And this man told us when he handed us the money, simply, Jesus loves you. And so we left the store, we drove to our designated suicide site, and we wept for hours. Eventually we realized we just couldn't go through with it, so we drove away. And as we drove, we noticed a church with a sign out front that read simply, Jesus loves you. And so we went to that church the very next Sunday, and both my wife and I were saved that day. He then told the pastor, when you began speaking this morning, I knew immediately that you were the man who had given us that money. How did he know? It was because the pastor was from South Africa and had a very distinct accent. And he continued to say, your act of kindness was much more than a simple good deed, for three people are alive today because of it. If you read the chapter from our blue book this week, the Something Needs to Change book, which I hope you did, you heard stories of a man losing an eye from infection, villages full of people dying from treatable diseases, a mother so stricken with grief at the loss of her children that she takes her own life, an unwanted child chained up in a barn, a community without any teenage girls because they've all been sex trafficked, and a child driven to hatred because of the hunger and her stomach. And I think some of us, we read that and we think to ourselves, well, that stuff doesn't happen around here. We don't see that same level of poverty or sickness or human trafficking around here. But the reality is that within our own community, you can find uh, children who go to bed without enough to eat. Uh, that, that 
in our town, there is a gas station that's known as one of the top human trafficking sites in the state of Iowa. You can drive 20 minutes south or a little more than that north, and I promise that you could find probably even right now, standing outside of most grocery stores, people who are depressed and hungry and broken. And the New Testament picture of faith in Jesus Christ, which I would wager that most of us in the room profess, is that and if you don't, excuse me, if you don't, it's, it's okay, right? We're, you're still welcome here. There's a place for you here if you're here this morning and say, I'm not a believer. We want to show you a little bit about why we believe in this Jesus, the picture that he paints of himself. And when we look at Jesus, the Jesus of the New Testament, we see a picture of radical charity, of somebody who was meeting people's needs and caring for them as a way of pointing them back to himself and their most ultimate fulfillment. And so in the same way, the New Testament picture of Christianity is one that serves people, that loves people, and that cares for people uh, because they're created in God's image and so that we can point them back to their most important need, which is Christ himself. So we're called to meet physical needs as a way of pointing to their spiritual need. Christians care about meeting physical needs because we care about God's creation and because it points people to the fulfillment of their greatest need. And so we're going to start this morning with the text from our study and look at how Jesus came to meet our greatest need. This is from Luke chapter 4. If you want to turn in your Bibles, you can, or you can look up on the screen. It'll be there for you. Uh, Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 21. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he being Jesus, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." Then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So just before this passage takes place, Jesus had been baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist, and he was taken out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. He was tempted for 40 days without food by the devil, and then he journeys back into the region of his childhood, and it says that he goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, which was his custom. So clearly, Jesus considered being part of the body important, as it says it was his custom to go to the synagogue even when he was traveling, and he's given the scroll of Isaiah to read, which was also part of the custom, as any male over the age of 13 who had completed their bar mitzvah was eligible to read and to teach to the gathered body at the synagogue. And so when Jesus came to the synagogue, he hadn't been around for a while, but they knew him from childhood. He was considered an honored guest. And so as was the custom, someone who was from out of town, which would now be Jesus since he no longer permanently resided in Nazareth, was given the honor of the first opportunity to read and to teach. I... Could you imagine what it would be like if that was the custom still today? Like somebody walks in and we give them a new visitor basket and we say, King, welcome to Anchor Bible Church. Here's a Bible and a microphone. Get up there, champ. Uh, so get ready next week. Just hand one of you the microphone. 
And so the passage, Jesus gets the scroll, he gets this opportunity to teach, and the passage that he reads from is Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And Jesus actually omits the last line of verse 2 about the day of the Lord's vengeance. So if you go and read Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, Jesus leaves part of it out, uh, presumably because that wasn't the, the point that he was trying to make, the part of his message that he was trying to emphasize to the people at the beginning of his ministry was the message of salvation and the, the message of um, the, the vengeance of of God, the day of the Lord, which is very real, Jesus would talk about later in his ministry. But Jesus, on this particular day in his life, had come to make a very bold claim. Because the promise throughout the whole book of Isaiah is that the Lord's chosen Messiah is coming and he is going to bring with him salvation for God's people. And so when Jesus says, This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, he's saying that God's redemptive plan for the salvation of his people has begun. And the one that you've been waiting for, the Messiah that you've been hoping for and expecting is here in front of you, that God's new creation and the new age of salvation has come. But notice in the passage that Jesus is very specific to quote who he claims to have come for. Because one of the most important themes throughout all of Scripture and especially in the Gospels is that in the kingdom of God, the social hierarchy of man is actually flipped on its head. And so you'll hear this referred to as the upside-down kingdom, or in our study book, the author refers to it as having an eternal perspective. It means seeing the poor and the imprisoned and the oppressed and the outcast, the blinded, as the ones that are truly blessed because they are the ones that Jesus is looking for and the ones who will be greatest in heaven. And then he, at the end, in the passage from Isaiah, there's this little phrase, the year of the Lord's favor that Jesus has come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's actually packed full of significance. Because in Leviticus 25, God establishes an economic practice called the year of Jubilee. And so what that meant was that the farmers would farm their land for six years, and then in the seventh year they would let the land rest, which is just good agricultural practice. It's still practiced in various forms today. And so God, in his faithfulness, told his people that if they were obedient to his command that was ultimately for their good so that their land would have longevity, that he would provide for them enough food in years one through six that they didn't actually need to farm on year seven because they would have plenty to eat. And anything that did grow in the fields on its own in year seven was actually left there and not picked by the farmers and the poor of the community were invited to come in and pick that food and take it for themselves. And then after this cycle of six years of farming and one year of letting the land rest had happened seven times, you get to the 59th year or the, the 50th year called the year of Jubilee. And during the year of Jubilee, everybody's debts were canceled. Anyone who had become a slave because they couldn't pay off their debt was set free. Anyone who had sold their ancestral land to survive was given it back, and everyone was freed of their debts and their burdens. It was this great resetting in which people showed grace to each other despite economic differences, despite the way things had gone the previous 49 years. Everything was being reset. 
And so all this is to say, Jesus is making it clear that when he comes on the scene as the Messiah, as the expected Savior of the world, that he's not just coming back for the people that they would have expected, the the religious, the well-off, the the ones who knew the Torah, who had memorized the first five books of the Old Testament, that he wasn't just coming for those people, but he was coming for the lowest members of society, the physically poor and the spiritually poor as well. Those who were imprisoned in cages of metal and stone and those who were imprisoned and held captive within cages of their own spirits, their own hearts and minds. And so when someone is saved, we often say that they've been set free from the power of sin and death, that their eyes have been opened, referring back to all of these ways that Jesus said he was coming to free the oppressed and to give sight to the blind and to allow the lame to walk. And so in the most beautiful way, Jesus, in quoting Isaiah 61, is making it clear that the reach of his message, that the goal of his salvation extends far beyond the wealthy elites. It extends far beyond those who can provide for themselves physically or those who can provide for themselves spiritually. That his heart is actually most affected by those who are poor and oppressed and that he has come to fulfill their deepest needs. Not just their physical needs, although we're about to see how he does that, but their most important need, which is salvation through him. It seems to me that many Christians today view physical and spiritual needs as an either-or, as in one has to be more important than the other, or one has to be prioritized completely and the other has to be forgotten about. And so what you get is on one hand, you get the progressive church today that is all about justice and service, but it neglects the truth of the gospel. And then you get certain evangelical churches who will talk about the importance of people knowing Jesus, but then do little to actually care for people the way Jesus did. I think, however, that when we look at Jesus, he considered both of them to be incredibly important. With the spiritual need taking the level of highest importance because its implications are eternal, but with both physical and spiritual need being important enough for God to care about them. And practically, you look at the example of the man who lost his eye in the book, the study book from this week, and when they try to tell him about Jesus, the only thing he responds with is, I need help for my eye. That's because it's really hard for people to hear the most important message when their basic needs are not met. You can ask some of the kids that we met in Milwaukee on our mission trip this summer, it's really hard to listen to a Sunday school lesson or a VBS teaching when you can't hear it over your stomach growling. It's really hard to care about the message of salvation that's available in Christ when you can't see. And so Jesus cared deeply about people's deepest need, about their spiritual need of coming to know him, but it didn't subtract or take away from his ministry to them physically. And so that's the second point this morning, that Jesus cared about physical need. And so we look in Luke chapter 5, just a chapter later in the Gospel of Luke, and it says, While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. 
And yet the news about him spread all the more so that the crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. So leprosy in the first century was a term used to describe a number of skin diseases that made someone ceremonially unclean according to Levitical law, to the point that no one dared touch someone with leprosy lest they become unclean themselves. If you, if you touched someone who had leprosy, you were considered as if you had leprosy yourself. And so lepers often had to live outside of the walls of the city, outside of the protected area of the city, because they were so socially and religiously ostracized, and people didn't want to risk touching them for risk of becoming unclean themselves. And so these people who had been ostracized, who were forced to live outside the wall, who hadn't had any kind of human physical contact in a number of years— come before Jesus, and, and many of the people around Jesus likely expected him to do what they would have done, which is shrink back and step away from those who are unclean. But we don't see that in Jesus. Like, to even let this man come near to him was earth-shattering in its implications. And then in typical Jesus fashion, he cares for the man's physical needs, and then he does what? He points to his spiritual need which is why Jesus sends him to the priest, to demonstrate that God had just come and healed this poor man. And often people were afraid to, to touch him, again, for fear of becoming unclean or take on his uncleanliness. But instead, Jesus, just like he does with our sin, touched this man who was unclean and took all that uncleanliness away from him and made him clean, washed him clean and made him new. The entire outlook of this man's life was changed in that single moment. And none of this happens if Jesus isn't willing to minister to the afflicted, to the outcasts, to the sick, and to the broken. And so as citizens of the kingdom of God, which was inaugurated in Jesus and is now given to us as our identity if we're in Christ, that we are made citizens of God's new kingdom, we simply have no other choice than to do what Jesus did. There was no concept in Jesus' understanding of having faith that was primarily concerned with the self, that was primarily inward-looking and concerned with what am I getting out of church? What am I getting out of my faith? What benefit does this have for me? He chose to describe his purpose, his very essence for coming to the earth using Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, which is full of descriptions, not of Jesus helping people grow into the best version of themselves, but as him going to help and care for other people. When he talks about ministry, when he talks about his life and purpose and the one that we are to emulate, Jesus is always using active verbs. Phrases like going and fishing and harvesting and serving and loving. I would contend that to Jesus, there was no such thing as being a missions cheerleader. You know, the whole like, oh yeah, it's, it's really nice. It's a nice idea that you go and do missions. It's a, it's a really nice idea that you go and serve the least of these. And I'm super happy that we're sending money over here or we're sending people to this place or that place to serve, but then having no responsibility ourselves to go and do likewise. There's no such thing as being a Christian and not going to the people who need our help the most. What did Jesus say, for example, to the rich young ruler who said, Jesus, I followed every commandment in the book. What else do I need to follow you, to enter into the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, go sell everything and follow me. And so what if Jesus said to you, hey, go 
and leave your small group and leave this church family that you love so that I can go and send you out to do missions. Or hey, you don't actually need a church that has air conditioning. You don't need to meet in a building anymore. You need to go and do church on the corners of streets with the homeless. How many of us would be looking to make up some kind of excuse so that we could keep our comfortable Christianity? There's no stagnancy in Jesus. He was the least rushed person in the world, and yet he was always doing something to serve someone else, except for the times when he would go and he would take his needed times of prayer, which is just another important aspect of serving that we should emulate. Paul said to the Corinthian church, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so you, you hear this idea that we are called to as Christians to look like Jesus. I've heard one pastor refer to it as apprenticing Jesus, being Jesus' apprentice. We want to look like him. We want to follow him. We want to do what he does and live how he lived, which I love because it communicates this idea that we learn from Jesus as his apprentice. And then just like he did with his disciples, he sends us out to go and do the work that he was doing. And so Jesus, as the epitome of self-giving love, is our teacher, is the one that we look towards. His life was characterized by self-sacrifice and self-giving. His death was characterized by it. And so we see a picture among the earliest followers of Jesus where they were so radically on fire for who he was and what he had called them to, so in love with him that the same self-sacrificing attitude just poured out of them in everything they did. If you read Acts chapter 2, they were selling stuff when anyone among them in their community had a need. Like, could you imagine in Centerpoint, Iowa, if you walked out one day and you noticed that your neighbor's car was gone, and you ask what happened, and they just said, well, there was a new family in our church that had a ton of medical debt and couldn't put food on the table, so we sold the car and gave them the money. Shoot, people would start flocking here, like, man, I want some of that. And I'm not even just talking about the money. They're like, what, what the heck makes you guys so different that you'd be willing to do such a thing for someone you barely know? Jesus' ministry, especially his early ministry, was characterized by a deep care for people and providing for their needs. We serve a God who in his very nature is three and one, delighting in and serving the other persons of the Trinity that Jesus came to die so that we could be clean before the Father, that the Holy Spirit came to testify about what Jesus does to live within us, to make much of who Jesus is, that the very nature of our God's character One of his very core attributes is love and self-sacrifice within the persons of the Trinity. And so we simply, as followers, as believers in that God, have no choice but to do the same. But, But to try in our sanctification to reflect that same God unto others. And so Jesus... The, the last point today is that Jesus calls us to a kingdom mindset for meeting people's needs. And he warns us in Luke chapter 6. He says, Woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will weep and mourn. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. The kingdom of God is one with an upside-down social hierarchy when compared to ours, and Jesus does not sugarcoat it. And so if his heart is for the poor and the hungry and the outcast, then our hearts and our hands and our feet have to be for them as well. And, and debating about the best way to care for people in need is a bad excuse to never do anything at all. 
I'm not saying that we shouldn't have those conversations. I'm not saying that we never do anything here, but it feels to me like there's just a lot more to be done. I wonder for how many of us, myself included in this, that our faith has become so inwardly focused that in reality we're leaving our Christian lives half committed. If our walk with Jesus can be characterized primarily in terms of what we do for our own faith and our own spiritual development by what takes place within the walls of this building, then we are falling short. The great Puritan theologian and pastor William Ames said this of caring for others as a Christian, inward obedience is not sufficient by itself because the whole man ought to be subject himself to God. Our bodies are to be offered to God. That we can't simply give Jesus the faith that exists in here, but we have to give Jesus the faith that exists out here. If you want to know where you stand in terms of giving to others, in terms of being a Christian who doesn't just live for themselves, I'll quote another great pastor, Tim Keller. He says, your money and your time flow straight to your God. Your money and your time flow straight to your God. That is to say that if you want to know how seriously you take caring for others as Christ did, look at your bank statement and look at your calendar. And I'm not here to take a special offering this morning. I'm not saying give more money to, just to the church. Right? I don't have a basket in my hands. That's not what we're here to do. This has nothing to do with me guilting you into giving or to serving. I'm just saying that those are important indicators of what you and I value. And I was reading this week, and, and I've been try, trying to read through the Bible. I had a pastor tell me one time that in the first 15 years of your ministry, just read through the Bible cover to cover, just over and over again. So I've been trying to do that. I found myself this week in the Old Testament in Jeremiah 1. And in Jeremiah 1.5, God says to Jeremiah, Before I created you, I knew you. And I've been convicted about what our purpose is as Christians recently, and it dawned upon me that as we find ourselves constantly wondering, like, what, does God have anything for me? Can he really use me in the way he used the Old Testament prophets? That the, that, that same principle is true. That the, the scripture that Pastor Andrew loves to quote about, about us being knit together in our mother's womb, that that's true. That before the foundation of the world was laid, that God knew us. And in Ephesians Two, it says, it's by grace that we have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that none can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So through the grace that's been given to us in Christ, we are free to serve others. Not because we have to be good enough. Not because we need to serve others in order to get God to love us. That's another thing that Andrew pointed out this morning, that every other religion on the face of the planet is that you have to serve in order to get God to love you. But as Christians, we're actually free to serve because God loves us. We're free to give grace because we know, because we trust in the fact that we're not actually here by accident. That, that our security in Christ wasn't an accident and that he has created from before the earth was laid, before we were a thought in the minds of our parents, that he had a job, a calling for each and every one of us to do. That there's no sideline Christians, that we are all in this fight together and that your purpose and that my purpose is not something that we have to go out and try and find for ourselves, but that God created it 
for us. He created us in Christ to do these good works and he prepared them for us in advance. So, so there is no, I, I'm, I'm searching for, my, we, we can help each other find our purposes, but there's not a single one of us in this room that doesn't have one. There's not a single one of us in this room that wasn't knit together specifically for a purpose that God has set us on and brought us together to accomplish. And I believe that if the the second greatest commandment is like the first one, that if loving God with all our heart and our mind and our soul and our strength includes loving our neighbor as ourself, then our purposes are intimately wrapped up in caring for the needy, are, are intimately wrapped up in meeting the needs that Jesus came to meet. And so what do we do? We start by finding ways to meet physical needs and then to show people their greatest need, which is spiritual. And that's next week. So I'll see you back here next Sunday. And we need to do it, both as individuals and both as a church. As individuals, we need to find ways to meet physical needs. And actually, you and I don't have any excuse. You could type into Google ways to serve in blank area of need near me. Find someone, grab a friend from the church, grab your life group, and just go serve a meal at Mission of Hope. Ring Salvation Army bells. We have to do something. And as a church, as we start our missions team back up this fall, if you're like, hey, I have this great idea that God has placed upon my heart a a particular field of ministry in which we should be serving, or hey, I just want to be a part of helping this church get going and serving people, then come talk to us. We'll sign you up. It's not a closed committee. And finally, as we talk about this area we need to improve in, I want to make an important distinction. I'm not here, like, we didn't choose this church-wide study. We don't believe that God put it on our hearts because we need to guilt anybody. I don't believe that God is a God of guilt. But we all feel something in our hearts, in in our guts right now. It has to mean something. And so how are we supposed to know the difference between guilt and conviction? I'll quote from uh, Pastor Malcolm Marshall. He's from Houston First Baptist, and then I'll, I'll reword that quote myself. His goes like this. Guilt is rooted in shame and used by the enemy to keep us from getting closer to God. And conviction is rooted in love and used by God to keep us from getting closer to sin. Right, Hebrews 12.6 says the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And so when we feel those things, it's not because God's trying to guilt us. It's because in love he's convicting us to go away from sin and actually walk in the way that he's called us to, to, to lead the life that he has placed before us. Guilt is a disordered emotion of the enemy. Conviction is the state of the heart that recognizes that God is calling us to something more. Each and every one of you has been called to something. He created you in Christ Jesus and he prepared the works beforehand in advance that you might walk in them. So don't let this study be a tool for the enemy to guilt you into doing something or into not doing anything. Instead, allow what God is doing in your heart and in this church to open your eyes to the reality that God has actually called you to something greater. And when you reflect upon the fact that you were once that spiritually poor, that that those words from Isaiah 61, you could put your name in those before Jesus. That you were chained and mistreated in an evil world, blinded by the darkness of sin. Be reminded that it was 
you who Jesus came to save, to turn the world and its sin upon its head to get to you. That when he, when he stepped up to the cross at Calvary, that the poor and the oppressed and the broken, the ones that are stuck in the darkness of sin, that that was you and that was me. And now we have experienced new life and salvation. We've been called to share that message with others. Remember that. And I promise that your love for God will overflow onto the people around you in such a way that you can't help yourself but to give freely. For you know that Christ has given you more than anything. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for the body of Christ that you have placed us in, that you have called us to be a part of. I pray that those of us that find ourselves um, afflicted and and oppressed, Lord, and stuck in darkness, uh, God, that you would be near to us, that you tell us in your word that you are near to the brokenhearted, that you're never going to leave us or forsake us. God, so many promises that we can come to you when we are weary and heavy laden, Lord, for your yoke is easy and your burden is light. All of these things, God, we have this joy in the salvation placed before us. We, we have joy in the ways that you've provided for us. And yet, God, we know that you didn't give us these things to just sit here, but that you were actually calling us to something greater that you prepared in advance for us to walk in from before the creation of the world. Lord God, would you help us to step into that calling this morning to love you, to love people, and to make disciples of Jesus Christ, Lord. Would you convict us of that, but would you remove any guilt that's from the enemy as we step into the life that you have made for us? Lord Jesus, we thank you and we praise you and we pray these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.